Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 50. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm grateful you're here with me. Whether this is your first time here, or if you've been with me from the beginning, or anything in between, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. So, I've been talking about this big three-part anniversary bonanza for a while now, and here we are. A couple months back, I decided I wanted to plan something to celebrate hitting 50 episodes. But I also wanted to celebrate my one-year anniversary. I didn't really want to do a special episode, then a regular one, then another special one. So I decided to make it a three-week-long, we-made-it-to-a-year celebration of special episodes. And the Bonanza was born. So here's what's happening. I've invited some other podcasters to turn phrases with me. During each episode, I'll introduce their clips, play them, then play my response to each of them. The result of this will be three episodes with a variety of production styles, lots of phrases, and an overall good time. I had a ton of fun putting this together, and I truly hope you enjoy these special episodes. Now, without further ado, let's turn some phrases to find out their origins, history, and more. First up today is Augie from the Short Stories of Augie Peterson podcast. Let's hear a bit about her show and the phrases she wants to discuss today. This is Augie Peterson from the Short Stories of Augie Peterson, a podcast where I read my original short horror stories every Tuesday and sarcastically review a bad horror movie every Thursday. Hey Brisky, I was just wondering if you knew where the phrases beating a dead horse and this costs an arm and a leg originated. As a member of the horror community, I'm concerned about my predecessors having to chop people up and abuse animals just to get their point across. Looking forward to hearing your answers. Toodaloo! Thank you for that, Augie. So, you're concerned about your predecessors, huh? Well, these phrases don't come from quite as dark a place as one might think. Let's just go in the order you did and start with the horses. To beat a dead horse means that something is pointless. But where did this idiom come from? Many people believe it can be traced back to horse racing, which might seem a bit surprising since a good racehorse is a living racehorse. Many jockeys use riding crops to encourage their horses to go faster. Proper use of a riding crop entails light taps and touches, typically to the back haunch. And so using one properly doesn't hurt the horse at all. They're meant to be tools for teaching and encouragement, not for inflicting pain. Although using a crop or whip properly can gently encourage a horse to go faster or to pay attention, it can also be used improperly and be done too hard. But since a dead horse can't move or follow instructions, hitting them with a crop or whip, no matter how hard you do it, will never get them to move. Since jockeys aren't the only kind of riders who use crops, some people think it's just connected to horse riding in general. But either way, the sentiment is the same. This idiom has been in use since at least 1859, because we see it show up in print that year. We find the following in an article from the Watchman and Wesleyan Advertiser, a London newspaper. Quote, 
It was notorious that Mr. Bright was dissatisfied with his winter reform campaign, and rumors said that he had given up his effort with the exclamation that it was like flogging a dead horse. End quote. Flog is another way to say beat, so while the wording is slightly different, this is still believed to be the first idiomatic use in print. So now let's look at Augie's other phrase, it costs an arm and a leg. This idiom means something costs a lot, and there are a couple of ideas for where it came from. I'm going to tell you the least likely one first, because it's pretty fun. <laughs> Some people think it comes from how painters in old-timey times charged for their paintings. According to this theory, when an artist painted a portrait, they charged based on the size you wanted. That makes sense, right? A bigger painting requires a bigger canvas, more paint, and more time. But here's where the fun aspect of this theory comes in. Since bigger paintings cost more, the cheapest option was just the head and shoulders. Next was the head, shoulders, and torso, which included arms. The most expensive option was the full body, including legs. So it cost more to have arms and legs in the picture, leading to the saying. Now, this is almost certainly not the true origin of the saying, but like I said, it's a fun idea and it made me laugh, so I wanted to share it. Like I mentioned, bigger paintings just cost more because of the extra time and materials, not because they have more limbs in them. So what is the real origin? Well, it likely came from combining two older phrases, I would give my right arm for, and even if it takes a leg. These appeared in the vernacular in the 18th and 19th centuries, respectively. It's thought that they were combined into one idiom sometime around World War II, for the unfortunate reason that many soldiers paid the high price of losing arms and legs during battle. The first time this idiom is thought to have appeared in print was in a December 1949 article in the Long Beach Independent, a newspaper from Long Beach, California. It read, quote, Food editor Beulah Carney has more than 10 ideas for the homemaker who wants to say Merry Christmas and not have it cost her an arm and a leg. End quote. Augie, I hope this clears up the origins of these idioms for you. Thank you so much for being a part of my anniversary bonanza. Now, let's hear from our next pod pal of the day, Kim, from the People Are Wild podcast. Aloha all. This is Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse of a host from the People Are Wild podcast. It's a podcast that boasts medical entertainment, a term I like to call medutainment, in every episode that drops on Medutainment Mondays. Now, congrats to Brisky and to the Turn of Phrases podcast for this amazing, enormous, and inspiring milestone. I have lit all of my prayer candles in celebration and in honor, and not at all in an attempt to burn down one of my ex's homes. No, that's not what's going on. In fact, I am honored to be able to contribute to this episode while hopefully not dragging down the whole show. So, Here's a phrase I picked up on that I'm still kind of unsure about what its meaning is. In fact, I'm not even convinced there is a good origin story 
to this phrase. So some background. It goes back to my time in Australia when I was backpacking and doing my own version of Eat, Pray, Love that relied more on the eat part and less on that whole pray love business. I was there on a work travel visa and so I encountered many different versions of Australians and other backpackers from various parts of the world. And I was doing this as I was setting out to find myself and my purpose in life. Now, from true blue Aussies to bogan Aussies and everywhere and everyone in between, every Australian I met was amazing and they were very giving and very helpful. Now, even though Australia is an English-speaking country, at times I felt like even with their slang, I felt like I was a stranger in a strange land. Now, some of the Aussies I would work alongside in my various jobs that I did taught me some of this slang terminology and some of the phrases that were unique to the land down under. I've gradually adopted that into my current vocabulary. Good on ya, reigns supreme, and calling people either a mad ripper or a bloody ripper is also up there. Here's a thing about the land of Oz, though. They really like to use the C word. Like, see you next Tuesday? And to them, it's term of endearment in a way. So that was the biggest culture shock that I had that I had to somewhat get over pretty fast. I got called the C word at work by my supervisor one time, and I'm pretty sure my heart stopped briefly. Then my supervisor had to explain to me that no, it wasn't a joke and it was not meant to be offensive. It's how Australians say, good job, job well done. And my mind was blown, to say the least. Now, that leads me into the phrase that I'm unsure about its origin and its meaning, but I might have a bit of a hunch. Australians denote job well done or just a job done in general by saying things are, quote, fair dinkum. Fair is as in fair or not fair, and dinkum is D-I-N-K-U-M. Sounds made up. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm not sure. Someone told me one time after we were finishing up work for the day, hey, that's fair dinkum and I had no clue what they meant. And they picked up on my bewilderment and proceeded to further confuse me by trying to offer the definition to this phrase. Their mate tried to help them out, and it only led to more confusion and bewilderment from me. If you hop on Urban Dictionary and you search for the phrase fair dinkum, and then go search for a Philly sidecar. No, actually don't Search for a Philly sidecar. Please don't do that. You will not forgive yourself. Search for fair dinkum and it will give you the following top definitions. Australian slang, that means fair or true. To proclaim a fact or truth in a statement in such manner. So that definition in and of itself didn't really do much to help me to clarify what fair dinkum meant. The provided sentence example says, Fair dinkum, mate. Those shoes have seen better days. So I was still very confused about what does this phrase mean? And apparently there's murky waters within the land of Oz regarding the true origins of this phrase. I guess it's akin to saying true that. If you're like me and you grew up in the best decade to say words like true that, which would be the 1990s. So instead of true that, I just assume that Aussies say fair dinkum, I think. I'm still unclear as to how it properly is supposed to be used. And I tried to look up the origin of it, but it said that it was variable at best about how it became a phrase. So I have no clue where it even originates from. But it is kind of fun to say, right? Kind of go, uh, fair dinkum, mate. Going to head to the bottle of this, Arvo. You reckon that sounds good? Good on you, love. 
I don't know what just happened, but I hope all the Hemsworth brothers, Hugh Jackman and Margot Robbie are proud of me for that last sentence. Maybe not that horrible accent, but that sentence. It wasn't bloody ripper. I tried my best and that's all that matters. Anyways, what in the heck does fair dinkum mean? I'm still confused and this is a few years beyond leaving and finding myself. Please help to decipher this mystery phrase. It still haunts me to this day. Thanks, Kim, and I'll be sure to tag all those Australians when I post this so maybe they can hear your brilliant accent. (laughs) Who am I kidding? Those guys don't listen to my show. But hey, stranger things have happened. Anyway, fair dinkum. I have to admit, I'd never heard this one before you introduced me to it, so I hope I do it justice. Now, as you mentioned, it does basically mean something is fair, true, or real. It most definitely could be considered the Australian version of true that. No one seems to know exactly where it came from, although there is one believed origin out there that's likely not true. So what is this false folk origin? That would be that it came from Chinese miners, the digging for gold kind, not the under 18 kind. The Chinese expression din gum, spelled D-I-N-G-U-M, means real gold. So when they found real gold, they'd say this. Now, din gum does mean real gold, but this is not the real origin of fair dinkum. This Australian saying actually came from England. It was originally just dinkum, and the original meaning was honest toil, or basically hard work. Fair was later added really just for emphasis. Now, like I mentioned, no one really seems to know exactly where the phrase came from, and they don't really know when it first came about, but it had to be earlier than 1882, because we find the full phrase in print in an article from a February 1882 edition of the Nottingham Evening Post, from Nottingham, England. It read, quote, In all of these things he thought there should be fair dinkum to all classes of people. End quote. Now, I know I didn't give you a ton of info here, and what I did give you is somewhat ambiguous, but, as you already knew, there isn't much out there. This is one that just sort of seems to appear in the vernacular. But no matter who said it first, I don't think this highly popular down-under phrase will be going anywhere anytime soon. Kim, thank you tons for being part of the bonanza. Now let's hear from today's last, but certainly not least, PodPal. Angela from Story Spectacular. Hi, Brisky. Hi, Toppers. Angela Ferrari here from the Story Spectacular podcast. I have an idiom origin question for my ear buddy, Brisky, and that is, what does she left me high and dry mean? In my head, I always pictured an angry wife who is fed up with her lazy, boozy husband. So one night, she waits for him to fall asleep, then wheels him in his bed outside. She uses a pulley system to lift the bed into a tree so she can leave her husband passed out, stranded, and suspended in the air. Then she takes off with all their possessions, including the good hooch, thus leaving him high and dry. What do you think, Brisky? Did I nail this one, or am I as foolish as this old husband? Okay, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, Angela. Now, I really, really wish that that was the origin of this idiom. But, alas, it's not. 
There's not a lot of information out there about this phrase, because it's actually pretty straightforward. This idiom, which means to be left stranded, comes from beached ships. Now, unless they've been intentionally dry docked, most of the high and dry ships got there by entering an area during high tide, and then when the tide went out, the ship was beached. So the high part refers to them being basically dumped on the beach because of high tide. The dry part refers to ships being out of the water so long that they've dried out. Depending on how high the tide had been, the ship might get stuck at a point where the tide doesn't ever rise enough to get it back in the water. So it becomes dry and remains that way. That's why it's used to refer to something being stranded. This idiom has been in use since at least the early 18th century, because we find it in print in 1727. It was in a work called A New Account of the East Indies, being the observations and remarks of Captain Alexander Hamilton, which was written by Scottish sea captain, privateer, and merchant Alexander Hamilton. He wrote, quote, And the Virgin Mary, to shew her kindness and skill in navigation, stood a whole night on the forecastle, directing the devil how he would steer, and behold, to the great admiration of all concerned, the ship was high and dry in the morning, in a valley on the south side of the river of Goa, about a half a mile within the land. End quote. So, while this saying has nothing to do with frustrated wives, it may sometimes have had to do with hooch, in a way. I mean, I know a ship could be beached on accident by a completely sober person, but I bet at least once in the entire history of boating that someone has beached a boat due to being inebriated. Anyway, I hope this answers your question, Angela, and thank you for joining in with the Anniversary Bonanza. Alright, toppers, since this is a special episode, I'm not doing a metaphorical moment or a familiar quotation. So, that's going to do it for episode 50. I hope you enjoyed this special episode, and are looking forward to two more weeks of this. And if you don't already listen to the short stories of Augie Peterson, People Are Wild, or Story Spectacular, I highly recommend all three excellent podcasts. I'm not going to do my normal outro spiel, but stay tuned for the blooper section. Let me rephrase after this. Until next time, toppers. Thank you for helping me to get to 50 episodes of this little etymology adventure. Toodaloo. Let me rephrase. During each episode, each, I don't even know what word that was. You're concerned about your predecessors. Pre predecessors. It's pred. Pre just sounds weird. Let me try that again. We find the following in an article from the Watchman and Wesleyan. Oh, Wesleyan. Wesleyan. We find the following in an article from the Watchman and Wesleyan at. Ah, I said that wrong. It wasn't... Okay, I just... My mouth just quit working. It's no wondering... It's no wondering? <laughs> that's not even... That's not right.
The Chinese expression dim, nope, I said that wrong. Because we find the fo, the fo, <laughs> the dry part refers to ships being out of the water so long that they've dried out. <coughs> wow, excuse me, toppers, that was just so rude. Where was I? <laughs> totally shocked me. I don't even know where. <laughs> okay, there's where I was. Written by Scottish sea captain, privateer, and merchant, and and a bit. <laughs> but I bet at least once in the entire history of boating that someone has beached a boat doing doing. <laughs> Maybe I'm the drunk one. I don't drink, so I don't think I'm the drunk one. 